0: continuing on with our uh, He Would Love First series. Uh, We still have a few of the bracelets. I got mine on still, still white as snow. Um, And if you would like one, we have a few left. They're at the Information Center. And so if you go over there after the service, you'll find a a bowl over on the Information Center. You can grab yours, and you can still join in with uh, the series in that way. And what we're basically doing for these seven weeks is looking at what does it mean to love? What would Jesus do? Well, He would love first. Right, but what does love mean? And so um, today, we're actually going to take a little bit of a detour. So last week, we started into 1 Corinthians 13, and I said, we're going to be there for the rest of the series, and I lied to you because we're not today. But um, sometimes on the road to where you're going, you need a little detour. Sometimes you find a sweet little place. So if you're just joining us, you go back on the podcast after this and, and catch up and so you know where we are. Um, you're not going to miss anything if, by just sitting here today. Uh, today, we're going to sneak into a little alley. There, there's a place in downtown Toledo. I'll put it on the screen. If you know it, you know it. You know, one of those things people say, if you know, you know? If you know this place, you know it. But it's one of my favorite places uh, in the city because it's hidden and you can't see it from the street. There's no clear way how to get there. The parking's not real friendly. The front door to the place to get to this place is not real obvious either. But it's this little courtyard. Um, and you can have a great lunch in the summer. It's glorious. The sun comes out, and yet you're in the shade, and the wind gets blocked because you're in this little triangular courtyard. of things. And it's just one of my favorite places. And if you want to know where it is, I'm not telling you. <laughs> but it's a detour. Sometimes I'll just take the detour, and I'll say, yeah, I'm going to just go. That's where I'm going to go. It's a little place I like to be. So today we're taking a detour from 1 Corinthians. We're going back to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to get in a very familiar story. And so I have to kind of like, I kind of want to like shock you. So so like wake you up a little bit, because you're going to hear the familiar story, and you're going to lapse back into everything you've ever heard about it. And I actually want to twist the way you think about that story, because I think it's about love, and we've never really thought of it as about love. This is all based on um, an idea that I read from uh, James uh, Keenan, who's a Jesuit theologian, and he has this brilliantly simple idea. Sin is simply the failure to bother to love. It's from this book. He wrote this book called Commandments of Compassion. And this is it's a four-page chapter about this idea. Sin is simply the failure to bother to love. Sin. 2022, uh, I will tell you this. No one has ever begged me to uh, preach more about sin. I've never gotten an email. Hey, could you talk more about sin, though? No one wants to hear about sin, to be perfectly honest. Uh, we'd rather give away free root canals than, uh, oh, that's a 40-week sermon series on sin. And, like, that's a great way to close a church because we, we actually don't really want to hear about it. We don't really want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. Can we talk about the positive side? Don't talk about the negative side. And then we're, we've convinced ourselves in our culture, distracted ourselves into thinking that sin is not the issue. The problems are cultural. It's the culture. The culture is the problems. The problems are political. It's the politics. Are the, the problems are racial. We, why don't we address all those things? And I do get those emails. I get those emails. Why aren't we addressing the culture, the race, the politics, the whatever? Why are we addressing that? And my answer would be because the problem is Sin. That At the root of all the problems we see around us, the actual problem is sin, but we don't really like to talk about sin, and so then we end up thinking that that's something else. And so the house is on fire, and we're worried about the drapes, you know? We're like, you know, should we replace the drapes? And the house behind us is just crumbling. So today we're going to talk about sin. If you're new, uh, welcome to Covenant. Welcome. <laughs> so glad you're here. Uh, let this be a warning. <laughs> Uh, we love to love each other. We love to talk the positive things, but we are not here to tickle anyone's ears. Uh, that should be uh, pretty apparent. What we're here to do is encourage hearts to equip the saints to the work of ministry. That's what we exist to do on a Sunday. That's why we come to this place. So we might be equipped to go and do the work that God has called us to do. That's why Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is a thing we should have uh, front and center. We should have it twice a year. Rochelle's not going to argue with that. Let's have it three times a year. Once a quarter. Why? Because it represents an opportunity for us to get out of the building and our comfort and our bubble and to get into a place where we can make love an action verb again, where we can do something to push the kingdom forward. So that's why we exist. That's why we're here. So today we're going to talk about that action verb. We're going to talk about love. And we're going to ask the question, what do we call inaction? When it comes to love, what if I, if love is an action verb, if love is something I do, what happens if I don't do that thing? What's it called when we don't love? Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Scripture says one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him do this and you will live. And the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, who, who is my neighbor? This is familiar for many of you already. It's clearly the setup for the Good Samaritan story. This is where we're going. You see it. Okay, I see Okay. But we traditionally ask when we talk about the Good Samaritan, who is a neighbor and what does it mean to be a neighbor? I've preached that sermon. I know that one. Who is my neighbor and what does it mean to be a neighbor? And that's fine. And that's what we see in the scripture. He says, seeking justification, the man says, Who is my neighbor? But note that the heart of the exchange that we just read, before we even get into the parable, the heart of the exchange is a commandment, right? It starts rooted in the idea that you are supposed to love God and then love your neighbor. So any talk of the neighbor from here on out is rooted in the idea that there is a commandment been set forth to love. Love is the subject, neighbor is the object. So is the Good Samaritan story about the neighbor, or what does it mean to be a neighbor? I don't think it is. I think it's about love. So first, that's the first thing I want us to see. The Good Samaritan story is actually fundamentally a story about love. The second thing I want you to see is it asks a fundamental question, which is, what does it mean to love? Keep reading. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, and when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes. Now go and do the same. The question was asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story I would argue that is chiefly about love. Which of these three was the neighbor? And Jesus basically answers, isn't it the one who loved? What's oh, the one who showed him mercy. The one who loved is the one who's the neighbor. Jesus says, yeah, that's right. Go and do the same. Who honors the commandment then that was originally asked in the first part? What is the, the greatest commandment? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What, what's that about? Well, part one was love God with everything you've got. And part two was love your neighbor. Who honors the commandment? That one's pretty easy, right? James Keenan would say it's the one who bothered to love. The priest and the Levite, the temple assistant, they were confronted with a neighbor in the ditch, right? They are neighbors. That's their neighbor. That was made clear. But the Samaritan was a neighbor all the same. They were all definitionally neighbors. We are told what each of them did, and the story hinges on the contrast. None of this is new. I just want to reframe the wording. The contrast between what the Samaritan did and what the priest failed to do. That's the, that's the hinge of the whole story. So we call it the story of the Good Samaritan. But it's also a perfect picture of what it means to fail to bother to love. It's the story of what love looks like lived out, but it's also the story, if we're not careful to see it, it's the story of what it looks like to fail to bother to love or to sin. It's the story of passing by an opportunity to love God or love my neighbor as myself. This requires us to then drop back, because I said it's about sin. It's about love and it's about sin. How do we define sin? And this requires you to do some introspection on the spot. When I, when I ask people to define sin, they usually come up with some sort of, well, it's kind of like, and, and you have a half answer, and pretty quickly it devolves into a list. You know, like murder and steal, and You go through the commandments. Okay, well, yeah, that's true. There is something called a sin, but what is sin? If I ask most people, they come up with a list of negative or forbidden activities. And what I prefer about a failure to bother to love as a definition for sin is that it requires love to be tied with it. It requires love and sin to be perfectly tied together. They're inextricable from each other. You can't remove them. Jesus clearly ties them together. And yet we want to remove them and have a list of good behaviors and a list of bad behaviors. And Jesus goes, no, 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 I think it's not about that. I think it's about love. It seems to be what matters to Jesus. He's asked a similar question in Matthew 22. We'll read that just so we're sure. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So we've already said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's love. Which, of the, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All of the law and the prophets hang on what? All of the law and the prophets, all of your Old Testament that is then fulfilled in your New Testament by Jesus. So all of this hangs on what? Love, Jesus says. Love God, love neighbor. Everything in here, according to Jesus, hangs on those two things, love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. What's the most important commandment? What's the main thing, Jesus? What's, hey, God of the universe, creator of everything. Like, don't miss this. This isn't a line from the scripture that we then muddle with other things. This is the author of life being asked, what's the main thing, though? His response is love. To which I would say God is chiefly, Concerned with your love. When we look and do the the thing in our life or we kind of take account of our life and we start thinking, what what does God think of me? How does God how does God see God is chiefly concerned with your love? Where are you spending it? What are you doing with it? What is the object of it? So, how do we let God down? How do we disappoint God? How do we break his law? A violation of God's law is always rooted in a lack of love for God or neighbor. Go through that list of sins that you hold. Oh, the sin is uh, adultery, stealing, uh, punching my sister, whatever. You know, go through your list. All of those are rooted in a lack of love for either God or neighbor, and most likely both. People say, no, no, well, that can't be it because I love God and I still fall short sometimes. I love God. So it isn't, that, it isn't that all of my sin is because I don't love God. I do love God and I still mess up. And so how is that sin? Because I love God very much and I fall short. How is that sin? It's a great question. This is what I would call the problem of multiple loves. The problem of multiple loves. And I'm gonna put a picture of a basketball zone defense on the screen because you're gonna learn about basketball. So if you look at the screen now, you see, uh, look at the guys in white. Uh, This is a little older picture. The shorts were bigger back then. So the the front two guys, this is a 2-3 zone. There's two guys at the front, and there's three at the back. Two at the front, three at the back. They are each guarding space. In basketball, you can play a man-to-man defense where each person guards another person. This is a zone defense. Two and then three, and they guard space. And so if someone comes into your space, you guard them. And if there's no one in your space, then they're kind of like it's this wall in front of the basket. And it's a very uh, clever, difficult to do, but if it works, it works really well. This is a zone defense. How do you beat a zone defense? You beat a zone defense by uh, overloading. You beat a lo- zone defense by little slip- flip screens. You Basically what you're trying to do if you have the ball is you're trying to get it behind that front two guys. If you get it into the middle of the, the court, then the whole thing breaks down and you usually get a layup. It's a really uh, kind of fascinating little strategy thing to go through here's uh go to the next slide let me show you how this works we got like 40 of these so buckle up. i'm just kidding <laughs> it's the only other one this is uh, a way to beat his own defense and the whole principle is this when there's five people guarding space what you need to do is put more people in the space than someone can guard So that's what's happening here. The only thing you have to look at is the pink guys circled two versus one. There's two players in the dark jersey, and there's one player in the light jersey. So when the guy dribbling throws the ball over there, if you start figuring out where everybody's going to slide to, the guy in the top left is going to be without someone to guard, and it's going to be two on one. And now, what does this do? This means the defender has to make a choice, right? Right? If there's two people on offense and one on defense, the defender has to choose which one to guard. You can't just guard space at that point because they'll be behind you. So you have to make a choice. What does this have to do with anything? You know when people have two kids and then they move on to having three kids and then people like jokingly say at the baby shower, like, oh, you guys are gonna move from man to man to zone defense now. <laughs> and you know, and you're like, yeah, that's cool, whatever. It's just three kids. I don't know why, I don't know why he has that accent either, but he does. <laughs> gum it! that's zone defense. Okay. <laughs> Why is it a zone defense? Because you have two parents guarding three kids now. I mean, you're guarding the kids at all times, and now they can overwhelm you. And if they're smart, th- kids have been more than three, if you're one of those families, there's more than three of us. If you're smart, you figure out how to overload that zone real fast. You're like, okay, you go over there, start a fire, and then I'm going to, you know, get, get my candy. Life... Life is playing a zone defense on you, okay? You are simply one person, and there are lots of choices to make. And all of life is choosing between two loves, or 12 loves, or 100 loves. All of life is choosing between multiples. And you have to make a choice of which love am I going to choose? Which is the greater love, I would argue? That's the choice we're making at any given time. Which is the greater love? Do I love my spouse more or my needs more? Do I love my friend more or my time more? Do I love God's law more or my desires more? Do I love Jesus' commands more or my prosperity more? These are all everyday decisions we make all day. All day. Do I love God? Yes. Do I sometimes love myself more than God? Yeah. Do I love my neighbor? Yeah. Do I sometimes love myself more than my neighbor? That's called sin. That's the root of sin. The root of sin is when we get into the life, into that zone defense, and we have to make a choice. We have a choice to love God or love neighbor or love ourselves. And when we pull them down just a little bit so we can prioritize self, when we love love them just a little less, just a little less, that's the root of sin. As an example, it's a snowy day. There's a lot of coats hanging up in the hallway. A lot of nice coats. You guys have nice coats. So you hang your coats on the hooks in the hallway. What if, what if I just wanted a new coat? And I'm looking at you guys, and I'm like, some of you are kind of my size-ish. And coats, you know, they can be, that doesn't matter. And I just go, and I kind of look through the hallway, and I look at the wall, and I go, I think... one of those with the Canada patch on it. I've always wanted one of those. I'm taking that coat. That's a woman's coat. I don't care. It's warm. I'm taking that coat. I'm out. And I steal the coat. You would say, well, that's wrong. You can't steal the coat. I said, well, I already did. Too bad. It's my coat now. Why is it a sin? Why is it a sin for me to go and take someone else's coat and walk out? Some would say, I went to Sunday school. I'm very aware of this. It's the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. So you shalt thou, whatever. Don't do it. I'd say, okay, that's fair. That's good. God's law. Also, someone might say, what about the great commandment, though? Like this love your God with all your heart and love your neighbor. Could it be that? i say, yeah. I would say that stealing the coat is fundamentally a failure to bother to love. Right? Did I love God more or my desire for that coat more? Did I love God's law, thou shalt not steal, or, or my desire to have that coat? Which one did I love more in that moment? I love me more than I loved God. Okay, check. It's also a failure to bother to love my neighbor, who is now trudging back out into the snow minus the coat. So I've loved my warmth over their warmth. I've loved myself over them. So in both scenarios— It's a sin. Yes, God says it's a sin. Yes, God says it's a commandment, don't do that. But why is it a sin? It's a sin because I failed to bother to love God and I failed to bother to love neighbor more than myself. So I would argue that sin isn't the absence of love. Sin is disordered love on display. It's not the absence of love. We have to the sin has this weird stigma that it's like it is the purity of evil. And I would say often it's like a good thing elevated to the God thing. It's a good thing a little bit out of order. And that that becomes the root of a thing that ends up looking pretty nasty on the end. But at the beginning, it's just a disordered love. It's just a me putting myself before you. And when I do that often enough, we call it all kinds of things, but it's just sin. It's just disordered love. And in a life that's full of choices, there's always another choice to make. When we get the order wrong, we end up violating God's law of love. It's really clean and obvious scenarios, so I can say I can steal a coat. That seems obvious. I'm going to play devil's advocate to myself. So yeah, lust, okay. Gossip, sure. Murder, okay. I get it. Gratifying my flesh over God's law or, or my desire to be popular or have information or gain power or anger or my vengeance. I've, I've violated God's law because I've held that above his law to love each other. Okay, fine. It gets tricky, though, because... I don't know if you know this, we're mostly Americans. We, we, believe, uh, we believe that there's good and evil. We're a really reductive society. I mean, human beings are reductive in general. There's good and bad. That's pretty much the categories we hold. You grew up in uh, any time before the 90s, so as a kid of the 80s, you knew. USA, good. Soviet Union, bad. And now, what is it? Is it China? Is it Russia? There's always somebody. There's always bad. Is it all bad? Are we all good? It's like, well, there's gray, but yeah, okay. Democracy, communism, whatever. There's always good and bad. There's always black and white. I'm not saying communism's great. Don't go, send me an email. The reality, though, is the lines are shifting, and we kind of live in those categories in life. This is a good, this is bad. That's good, that's bad. This is great, that's not. And the reality is those lines shift culturally all the time, and we, we don't shift real well with them. We struggle to apply black and white thinking that we're used to applying to a, a really simplistic Sunday school world. We struggle to apply that to a gray world that's dynamic and changing. The example of this, my friend, uh, I have a friend in, in Texas, his name is Brian, shout out to Brian. Brian uh, is a little ahead of me on, on life's journey, he's kind of, I have a weekly call with him. He's kind of an accountability and a mentor and a friend, and so every week we talk on Wednesday morning. For the last year, he's been going through a thing where his mother-in-law passed away and his father-in-law was living then alone in Colorado um, and probably beyond the space where he needed to be living alone, especially alone a thousand miles away from any family. And so Brian, living in Texas, had to then spend the year with his wife figuring out, what do we do with my father-in-law? Do we put him in assisted living? Well, he doesn't want to do that at all. He wants his independence. Do we move him to Texas and let him live with us? Well, he doesn't want that because his friends are in Colorado. And there's all these complicated decisions that he had to, to navigate. And he makes more driving trips, like for a year throughout the middle of COVID, while everybody else was like shelter in place. He was getting in his car on Friday. He's a school teacher. And he would then drive to Colorado, get there uh, early Saturday morning, do a day's worth of stuff with his father-in-law, go to a, you know, clean out the garage or what are we doing here? Let's tour these assisted living places. They'd, they'd zoom in on every doctor's appointment and, and then he would drive home in time to be ready for Monday school. And he, he made countless drives, he and his wife. At the end of the day, they had to make a choice. What do we do? So they move his father-in-law to Texas. He lives with them for a time. And then they make the choice from there. They move him into assisted living in Texas so they can be close to him and continue to have a relationship with him, but give him community and give him all the things he needs to be, uh, live his full life. Brian loved sacrificially and Brian regularly wonders if he did the right thing. I was talking to him this week. I said, how's it going with your father-in-law? He goes, oh, you know, I just wonder. You, he, it's eating him up. Did I do the right thing? Was it the right time? Did we do it in the right way? And, and he knows, and I know, and neither of us can answer those questions. You did the next right thing. You know, you, you took the next right step. You loved sacrificially. You didn't do this selfishly. This wasn't baked in your own convenience. This was hard. Easiest thing would have been to just let him be. But that wasn't the best thing for his father-in-law. So he loved. My friend Brian loved. I would say he bothered to love over and over and over. At every scenario he bothered to love. Was it the right decision? Is it the right thing? This is the gray that we live in. Did we bother to love? My friend sacrificed a year of his life to try to give his father-in-law the best life possible. As Americans, we are really good at grading results. How did that go? Where what we need to be more concerned with is, did we follow the right process? We are a results-oriented culture, and we have a process-oriented God. Because God's already got the results sorted out. God's got the results figured out. I don't know if you, you can read Forward, it's kind of a clever book that you can read the end already. You can see where this is going, and we get so focused on the result that we don't pay any attention to whether it was right process or wrong process. And this is sports analytics. This is uh, we have to we have to go trust the process. If you do the right thing often enough, the variables say that this is where I'm supposed to be. And God looks at our hearts and the process we make. He's looking at the intention of a man's heart, not the result of a man's hands. So did Brian do the right thing? I would say, absolutely. Had he done different things, did he do the right thing? I would say, probably so. But he trusted the process of, I will at every turn, I'm going to ask the question, am I loving myself in this decision or am I trying to love my father-in-law? And over and over, he put himself second and he put his father-in-law first. And at the point of exhaustion, he says, I think we did the best we could do. And I still don't know if it was the right thing, but I don't think there's a right thing, Brian. I think there's a right process. I think there's a right heart. I think there's a, A person who bothered to love over and over and over. What about a mother stealing bread to feed her starving children, you say? Is that a sin? This is the Ethics 101. Let's go to philosophy class. Is it a a sin for a mother to steal bread to feed her starving children? I would even ask, would would it be a sin if she didn't steal it? I mean... How do we unpack that? How do we, I mean, it's, where's the black and white? Where's the list? How does this work? What do we measure this against? I would say, show me love for God and neighbor. Show me obedience, show me trust. Show me obedience rooted in commitment, evidence, and self-sacrifice, right? The, the thing we've said is the definition of love. Show me obedience rooted in commitment, evidenced in self-sacrifice. And the gray of that we have to live with because we live in a world of endless choice and multiple loves. We live in a world that is playing zone defense on us and there are always multiple choices to make. And so what do we do? How do we love? How do we actively live out the love we say we have in us in a way that's practical and applicable to all of these crazy multiple choice questions? I think we have two strategies. First, rely on Jesus's life his example, and his teaching. That's the first one. Rely on Jesus' life, example, and teaching. That seems really simple. If you think there's a choice, ask the question, which love here should win? John 15, 13. Jesus says this. These are Jesus' words, not mine. Jesus says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Okay? So, when faced with a choice, We can simply ask the question, which is the greater love? And we can apply Jesus' words to it and go, well, probably the one, honestly, the greater love is probably the one that costs me and lifts up my friend. That's probably the greater love. So in any given choice, we have the ability to make that delineation. So listen to Jesus. The bonus points here is Jesus is putting this to work. This is not his theory about love. This is not a white paper about love. Jesus is clearly talking about himself. He's clearly talking about his crucifixion but he's also giving us a framework on how to apply love in our everyday life. Should I help my friend move or sleep in because it's Saturday and I just never get to rest? That's an honest question that if we're honest, we all ask ourselves when someone says, hey, can you help me move? Oh, I mean, I I can. This is what you think before you respond, right? I can. Do I want to? I mean, I kind of. I mean, that would feel gratifying to help you move because then you would know that I'm a good person who helped. Huh. It is Saturday. What's the weather? You know, we start going through all the checklists. The question is, which is the greater love? Is it my desire to sleep an extra hour or is it, my, uh, or is it the love I would have for a friend to help them with that hour? Which is the greater love? Well, it's the greater love is no one than this, then he laid down his life for his friends. So I guess, I guess the decision there is really easy. If you ask 100 people to move and they all apply that standard, odds are you're going to get 98 or 99 of them. Because that's a really simple standard. Some would say, no, 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 sleeping in is self-care. You need to do that. And I'd say, okay, greater love is no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. No, self-care goes away so I can love you. There's no sin in saying no to something. You have good boundaries. Greater love is no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. My boundaries went away so I could love you. Don't take this too far. Don't take it to an unhealthy place. God's got the ending already, right? So I don't have to work to make it all happen. But when the opportunity presents itself, I can ask that question, which is the greater love? Which one lays down my life for another? And then, if you want to ask, which one becomes a failure to bother to love? So the first strategy is this. In a world searching for lesser evils, we should be a people looking for a greater love, looking towards a greater love. That's that's the first strategy. In a world searching for which is the lesser evil, we have to be a people who's looking for the greater love. Okay. Second strategy. We call this one the Holy Spirit not quite as concrete but just as effective how do we make our way through a complicated world full of avenues to love and not become paralyzed by all of it there's just too many options so here's the question if i'm on my way to counsel a grieving church member and i see someone broken down on a snowy day on the side of the road I maybe mean, a mother and her children and they're vulnerable and i see that and i'm on my way to go sit with a grieving church member who just lost a loved one, and then I see these people on the side of the road that also are in great need, then what do I do? Which is the greater love, you would ask? Apply it to yourself, genius. How am I supposed to know? Which is the greater love? Maybe they're covered. Maybe they're okay. Maybe she's not okay. Maybe she's really good. She's a mechanic, and she blew up your mind right there, and she's changing her tire and really excited about it. I don't know. Which is the greater love? John 15 again. Jesus again. I will send you the helper from the Father. The helper is the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, and when he comes, he will tell you about me. What we know to be true is that you've been given the spirit of truth, God's own spirit, to live in you and become your advocate, your advisor, your helper, your comforter. So if you get asked to help somebody move on Friday— And your spouse is in desperate need of real connection and your full attention to process life and difficulty she's going through on Saturday. And that's the only chance you have. And you go, I don't know. I'm supposed to lay down my life for my friends, right? Isn't this a super simple black and white? Stop making it black and white. Which is the greater love? I don't know. We pray. The answer there is we pray. We pray. We say, you know what I'm going to do is take this to the Holy Spirit, the advisor, the helper, the comforter, the spirit of truth that lives in me. I'm going to take it to the God of the universe who has instilled his spirit within me and I'm going to say, God, will you help me make a good decision here? Will you help make my heart centered so I I do the right thing? Appeal to the spirit. The problem is we become so self-reliant that we want to create a new list. Every time we talk about anything, we want new lists. We want a new way to codify this is right and this is wrong. This is black and this is white. We want to keep doing it a certain way and And sometimes the answer is just pray. The answer is look to the Spirit. God doesn't need us to make new rules for living. He has them. And when it comes time to interpret them, he says, I have given you a helper. He wants us to be reliant on love in order to be led by love that we might begin to evidence true love. So the Spirit of God is God and God is love. So the perfect heart of love is in you right now. So if you rely on God and rely on the Spirit and become more reliant on that every day, now you have the heart of love beating within you and you begin to make decisions subconsciously that are in line with his heart for you. So what's the second strategy? The first one is about Jesus. The second is about the Spirit. In a world always seeking more self-reliance, we should be people ever more reliant on God's love and leading Spirit. So today you're going, I have this important thing I do, but I also want to see if I can volunteer with her choice. What do I do? pray about it. Ask the Spirit, what do I do? And between two great decisions, both well-intentioned, both self-sacrificial, which one do you do? You do the one that the Spirit nudges you into doing, and you don't look back. Because if sin is simply the failure to bother to love, then our job is to appeal to the heart of love every day and to say, how can I be love? Our job is to seek the Spirit as we follow God's Son so we might live out the Father's will. We are intended to be people who love out loud. Our, our mission statement, this, this really simple phrase of to know God and know Jesus and make him known, that's to know what love is and then to love out loud. That's what that means. We need to know what love is, know who love is, and then begin to love out loud. And that's our prayer today, that we would love out loud for God's glory, for Jesus' fame. May we be the people who love out loud. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are uh, really good at making lists and really good at uh, creating difficult choices where where there's a lot of good choices to be had. Father, I pray that as we try to uh, take this idea that there is a greatest love and greater loves in every opportunity, Father, my prayer is that we would be a people who would find your spirit again. We would... uh, walk away from self-reliance and walk away from our self-sufficiency, that we would lean back into you. And in doing so, we might find not only your wisdom and your guidance, but we would find you. We would find love. Our neighbors would find love and our neighbors would find you. So Father, open our hearts to your presence. Open our hearts to your truth. Thank you for uh, time and space to be with you. Lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org slash connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.